be sure to follow Send Me to Sleep on your preferred podcast player so you never miss an episode and a good night's rest. Good evening. Tonight, I'll be reading chapters 14 and 15 of The Scarlet Pimpernel by Emma Ortsey. So let your eyes fall heavy and your breath soften as we settle in for a peaceful night's sleep. Chapter 14 One O'Clock Precisely Supper had been extremely gay. All those present declared that never had Lady Blackney been more adorable, nor that demmed idiot Sir Percy more amusing. His Royal Highness had laughed until the tears streamed down his cheeks at Blackney's foolish yet funny repartees. His doggerel verse, We seek him here, we seek him there, etc., was sung to the tune of Ho, Merry Britons, and to the accompaniment of glasses knocked loudly against the table. Lord Grenville, moreover, had a most perfect cook. Some wags asserted that he was a sicken of the old French noblesse, who, having lost his fortune, had come to seek it in the cuisine of the foreign office. Marguerite Blackney was in her most brilliant mood, and surely not a soul in that crowded supper room had even an inkling of the terrible struggle which was raging within her heart. The clock was ticking so mercilessly on. It was long past midnight, and even the Prince of Wales was thinking of leaving the supper table. Within the next half hour, the destinies of two brave men would be pitted against one another, the dearly beloved brother, and he, the unknown hero. Marguerite had not even tried to see Chauvelin during this last hour. She knew that his keen, fox-like eyes would terrify her at once, and incline the balance of her decisions towards Amand. Whilst she did not see him, there still lingered in her heart of hearts a vague, undefined hope that something would occur, something big, enormous, epoch-making, which would shift from her young, weak shoulders this terrible burden of responsibility of having to choose between two such cruel alternatives. 
But the minutes ticked on with that dull monotony which they invariably seem to assume when our very nerves ache with their incessant ticking. After supper, dancing was resumed. His Royal Highness had left, and there was general talk of departing among older guests. The young ones were indefatigable, and had started on a new gavotte, which would fill the next quarter of an hour. Marguerite did not feel equal to another dance. There is a limit to the most enduring self-control. Escorted by a cabinet minister, she had once more found her way to the tiny boudoir, still the most deserted among all the rooms. She knew that Chauvelin must be lying in wait for her somewhere, ready to seize the first possible opportunity for a tete-a-tete. His eyes had met hers for a moment after the four-supper minute, and she knew that the keen diplomatist, with those searching pale eyes of his, had divined that her work was accomplished. Fate had willed it so. Marguerite, torn by the most terrible conflict heart of woman can ever know, had resigned herself to its decrees. But Armand must be saved at all costs. He, first of all, for he was her brother, had been mother, father, friend to her ever since she, a tiny babe, had lost both her parents. To think of Armand dying a traitor's death on the guillotine was too horrible even to dwell upon. Impossible, in fact. That could never be. Never. As for the stranger, the hero, well, let fate decide. Marguerite would redeem her brother's life at the hands of the relentless enemy. Then let that cunning Scarlet Pimpernel extricate himself after that. Perhaps, vaguely, Marguerite hoped that the daring plotter, who for so many months had baffled an army of spies, would still manage to evade Chauvelin and remain immune to the end. She thought of all this as she sat listening to the witty discourse of the cabinet minister, who, no doubt, felt that he had found the Lady Blackney a most perfect listener. Suddenly, she saw the keen, fox-like face of Chauvelin peeping through the curtain doorway. Lord Fancourt, she said to the minister, will you do me a service? I am entirely at your ladyship's service he replied gallantly. Will you see if my husband is still in the card room? 
and if he is, will you tell him that I am very tired and would be glad to go home soon? The commands of a beautiful woman are binding on all mankind, even on cabinet ministers. Lord Fancourt prepared to obey instantly. I do not like to leave your ladyship alone, he said. Never fear, I shall be quite safe here, and, I think, undisturbed. But I am really tired. You know Sir Percy will drive back to Richmond. It's a long way, and we shall not, and we do not hurry. Get home before daybreak. Lord Fancourt had preforce to go. The moment he had disappeared, Chauvelin slipped into the room, and the next instant stood calm and impassive by her side. You have news for me, he said. An icy mantle seemed to have suddenly settled round Marguerite's shoulders. Though her cheeks glowed with fire, she felt chilled and numbed. Oh, Amand, will you ever know the terrible sacrifice of pride, of dignity, of womanliness a devoted sister is making for your sake? Nothing of importance, she said, staring mechanically before her. But it might prove a clue. I contrived, no matter how, to detect Sir Andrew Fox in the very act of burning a paper at one of these candles in this very room. That paper I succeeded in holding between my fingers for the space of two minutes, and to cast my eye on it for that of ten seconds. Time enough to learn its contents? asked Chauvelin quietly. She nodded, then she continued in the same even mechanical tone of voice. In the corner of the paper there was the usual rough device of a small, star-shaped flower. Above it I read two lines. Everything else was scorched and blackened by the flame. And what were these two lines? Her throat seemed suddenly to have contracted. For an instant she felt that she could not speak the words which might send a brave man to his death. It is lucky that the whole paper was not burned, added Chauvelin, with dry sarcasm, for it might have fared ill with Amand St. Just. What were the two lines, Citoyenne? One was I start myself tomorrow, she said quietly. The other, if you wish to speak to me, I shall be in the supper room 
at one o'clock precisely. Chauvelin looked up at the clock just above the mantelpiece. Then I have plenty of time, he said placidly. What are you going to do? she asked. She was pale as a statue. Her hands were icy cold. Her head and heart throbbed with the awful strain upon her nerves. Oh, this was cruel, cruel. What had she done to have deserved all this? Her choice was made. Had she done a vile action, or one that was sublime? The recording angel, who writes in the book of gold, alone could give an answer. What are you going to do? she repeated mechanically. Oh, nothing for the present. After that it will depend. On what? On whom I shall see in the supper room at one o'clock precisely. You will see the Scarlet Pimpernel, of course, but you do not know him. No, but I shall presently. Sir Andrew will have warned him. I think not. When you parted from him after the minute, he stood and watched you for a moment or two, with a look which gave to me an understanding that something had happened between you. It was only of that something. I thereupon engaged the young gallant in a long and animated conversation. We discussed her Gluck's singular success in London until a lady claimed his arm for supper. Since then, I did not lose sight of him through supper. When we all came upstairs again, Lady Portiles buttonholed him and started on the subject of pretty Mademoiselle Suzanne de Tournay. I knew he would not move until Lady Portiles had excused the subject, which will not be for another quarter of an hour at least, and it is five minutes to one now. He was prepared to go, and went up to the doorway, where, drawing aside the curtain, he stood for a moment, pointing out to Marguerite, the distant figure of Sir Andrew Foulkes in close conversation with Lady Portals. I think, he said, with a triumphant smile, that I may safely expect to find the person I seek in the dining room, fair lady. There may be more than one. Whoever is there, as the clock strikes one, will be shadowed by one of my men. Of these, one, or perhaps two, or even three, will leave for France tomorrow. One of these will be the Scarlet Pimpernel. Yes, and... I also 
fair lady, will leave for France tomorrow. The papers found at Dover upon the person of Sir Andrew Foulkes speak of the neighbourhood of Calais, of an inn which I know well, called Le Chat Grise, of a lonely place somewhere on the coast, the Pierre Blancard's hut, which I must endeavour to find. All these places are given as the point where this meddlesome Englishman has bidden the traitor de Tournay and others to meet his emissaries. But it seems that he has decided not to send his emissaries, that he will start himself tomorrow. Now, one of those persons whom I shall see anon in the supper room will be journeying to Calais, and I shall follow that person until I have tracked him to where those fugitive aristocrats await him. For that person, fair lady, will be the man whom I have sought for. For nearly a year, the man whose energy has outdone me, whose ingenuity has baffled me, whose audacity has set me wondering. Yes, me, who have seen a trick or two in my time, the mysterious and elusive Scarlet Pimpernel. And demand, she pleaded, have I ever broken my word? I promise you that the day the Scarlet Pimpernel and I start for France, I will send you that imprudent letter of his by special courier. More than that, I will pledge you the word of France that the day I lay hands on that meddlesome Englishman, Saint Just will be here in England, safe in the arms of his charming sister. And with a deep and elaborate bow, and another look at the clock, Chauvelin glided out of the room. It seemed to Marguerite that through all the noise, all the din of music, dancing and laughter, she could hear his cat-like tread gliding through the vast reception rooms, that she could hear him go down the massive staircase, reach the dining room and open the door. Fate had decided, had made her speak, had made her do a vile and abominable thing for the sake of the brother she loved. She lay back in her chair, passive and still, seeing the figure of her relentless enemy ever present before her aching eyes. When Chauvelin reached the supper room, it was quite deserted. It had that woe-begone look about it, forsaken, tawdy, which reminds one so much of a ball dress the morning after. Half-empty glasses littered the table. Unfolded napkins lay about. The chairs, turned downwards, 
one another in groups of twos and threes, seemed like the seats of ghosts, in close conversation with one another. There were sets of two chairs, very close to one another, in the far corners of the room, which spoke of recent whispered flirtations over cold game pie and champagne. There were sets of three and four chairs that recalled pleasant, animated discussions over the latest scandals. There were chairs straight up in a row that still looked starchy, critical, acid, like antiquated do-wagers. There were a few isolated, single chairs close to the table that spoke of Gourmand's intent on the most richer dishes and other overturned on the floor that spoke volumes on the subject of my Lord Greenville's cellars. It was a ghost-like replica, in fact, of that fashionable gathering upstairs, a ghost that haunts every house that throws balls and good suppers. A picture drawn while white chalk on grey cardboard, dull and colourless. Now that the bright silk dresses and gorgeously embroidered coats were no longer there to fill the foreground, and now that the candles flickered sleepily in their sockets. Chauvelin smiled benignly and rubbed his long, thin hands together. He looked round the deserted supper-room, whence even the last Frankie had retired in order to join his friends in the hall below. All was silence in the dimly lighted room, whilst the sound of the gavotte, the hum of distant talk and laughter, and the rumble of an occasional coach outside only seemed to reach this place of the sleeping beauty as the murmur of some flirting spooks far away. It all looked so peaceful, so luxurious and so still that the keenest observer, a veritable prophet, could never have guessed that, at this present moment, that deserted supper-room was nothing but a trap laid for the capture of the most cunning and audacious plotter those stirring times had ever seen. Chauvelin pondered and tried to peer into the immediate future. What would this man be like, whom he and the leaders of a whole revolution had sworn to bring to his death? Everything about him was weird and mysterious. His personality, which he had so cunningly concealed. The power he wielded over nineteen English gentlemen who seemed to obey his every command blindly and enthusiastically. The passionate love and submission he had roused in his little trained band and, above all, his marvellous audacity 
the boundless impudence with which he caused to bear his most implicable enemies within the very walls of Paris. No wonder that in France the sobriquet of the mysterious Englishman roused in the people a superstitious shudder. Chauvelin himself, as he gazed round the deserted room, where presently the weird hero would appear, felt a strange feeling of awe creeping all down his spine. But his plans were well laid. He felt sure that the Scarlet Pimpernel had not been warned, and felt equally sure that Marguerite Blakeney had not played him false. If she had, a cruel look that would have made her shudder gleamed in Chauvelin's keen, pale eyes. If she had played him a trick, a man St. Just would suffer the extreme penalty. But no, no, of course she had not played him false. Fortunately, the supper-room was deserted. This would make Chauvelin's task all the easier, when presently that unsuspecting enigma would enter it alone. No one was here now save Chauvelin himself. Stay, as he surveyed with a satisfied smile the solitude of the room. The cunning agent of the French government became aware of the peaceful, monotonous breathing of someone of my Lord Greenville's guests, who, no doubt, had supped both wisely and well, and was enjoying a quiet sleep. Away from the din of the dancing above, Chauvelin looked round once more, and there, in the corner of a sofa, in the dark angle of the room, his mouth open, his eyes shut, the sweet sounds of peaceful slumber proceeding from his nostrils, reclined the gorgeously apparelled, long-linged husband of the cleverest woman in Europe. Chauvelin looked at him as he lay there, placid, unconscious, at peace with all the world and himself. After the best of suppers and a smile that was almost one of pity, softened for a moment the hard lines of the Frenchman's face and the sarcastic twinkle of the pale eyes. Evidently the slumber, deep in dreamless sleep, would not interfere with Chauvelin's trap for catching that cunning scarlet pimpernel. Again he rubbed his hands together, and following the example of Sir Percy Blakeney, he too stretched himself out in the corner of another sofa, shut his eyes, opened his mouth, gave forth sounds of peaceful breathing, and waited.
Chapter 15 Doubt Marguerite Blakeney had watched the slight sable-clad figure of Chauvelin as he worked his way through the ballroom. Then, perforce, she had had to wait while her nerves tingled with excitement. Listlessly she sat in the small, still-deserted boudoir, looking out through the curtained doorway on the dancing couples beyond, looking at them, yet seeing nothing, hearing the music, yet conscious of naught save a feeling of expectancy, of anxious, weary waiting. Her mind conjured up before her the vision of what was, perhaps at this very moment, passing downstairs. The half-deserted dining room, the fateful hour, Chauvelin on the watch. Then, precise to the moment, the entrance of a man, he, the Scarlet Pimpernel, the mysterious leader, who to Marguerite had became almost unreal, so strange, so weird, this hidden identity. She wished she were in the supper room too, at this moment, watching him as he entered. She knew that her woman's penetration would at once recognise in the stranger's face, whoever it might be, that strong individuality which belongs to a leader of men, to a hero, to the mighty, high-soaring eagle whose daring wings were becoming entangled in the ferret's trap. Woman-like, she thought of him with unmixed sadness. The irony of that fate seemed so cruel, which allowed the fearless lion to succumb to the gnawing of a rat. Ah, her demand's life not been at sake. Faith, your ladyship must have thought me very remiss, said a voice suddenly, close to her elbow. I had a deal of difficulty in delivering your message, for I could not find Blakeney anywhere at first. Marguerite had forgotten all about her husband and her message to him. His very name, as spoken by Lord Fancourt, sounded strange and unfamiliar to her. So completely had she, in the last five minutes, lived her old life in the Rue de Richelieu again, with a mind always near her to love and protect her, to guard her from the many subtle intrigues which were forever raging in Paris in those days. I did find him at last, continued Lord Fancourt, and gave him your message. He said that he would give orders at once for the horses to be put to. Ah, she said, still very absently, you found my husband and gave him my message. Yes, he was in the dining room, fast asleep. I could not manage to wake him at first. 
Thank you very much, she said mechanically, trying to collect her thoughts. Will your ladyship honour me with the contradance until your coach is ready? asked Lord Fancourt. No, I thank you, my lord, but, and you will forgive me, I really am too tired, and the heat in the ballroom has become oppressive. The conservatory is deliciously cool. Let me take you there, and then get you something. You seem ailing, Lady Blakeney. I am only very tired, she repeated wearily, as she allowed Lord Fancart to lead her, where subdued lights and green plants lent coolness to the air. He got her a chair, into which she sank. This long interval of waiting was intolerable. Why did not Chauvelin come and tell her the result of his watch? Lord Fancourt was very attentive. She scarcely heard what he said, and suddenly startled him by asking abruptly, Lord Fancourt, do you perceive who was in the dining room just now, beside Sir Percy Blakeney? Only the agent of the French government, Monsieur Chauvelin, equally fast asleep in another corner, he said. Why does your ladyship ask? I don't know. I... Did you notice the time when you were there? It must have been about five or ten minutes past one. I wonder what your ladyship is thinking about, he added, for, evidently, the fair lady's thoughts were very far away, and she had not been listening to his intellectual conversation. But indeed, her thoughts were not very far away, only one story below in the same house, in the dining room where Chauvelin still on the watch. Had he failed? For one instant, that possibility rose before her as a hope, that the hope the Scarlet Pimpernel had been warned by Sir Andrew, and that Chauvelin's trap had failed to catch his bird. But that hope soon gave way to fear. Had he failed? But then, Amand. Lord Fancourt had given up talking since he found that he had no listener. He wanted an opportunity for slipping away, for sitting opposite to a lady, however fair, who is evidently not heeding the most vigorous efforts made for her entertainment, is not exhilarating even to a cabinet minister. Shall I find out if your ladyship's coach is ready? He said at last, tentatively. Oh, thank you. Thank you. If you would be so kind. I fear I am but sorry company. But I am really tired. And perhaps would be best to learn. She had been longing to be rid of him, 
for she hoped that, like the fox he so resembled, Chauvelin would be prowling round, thinking to find her alone. But Lord Fancourt went, and still Chauvelin did not come. Oh, what had happened? She felt a man's fate trembling in the balance. She feared, now with a deadly fear, that Chauvelin had failed, and that the mysterious Scarlet Pimpernel had proved elusive once more. Then she knew that she need hope for no pity, no mercy from him. He had pronounced his either-or, and nothing less would content him. He was very spiteful, and would affect the belief that she had willfully misled him, and having failed to trap the eagle once again, his vengeful mind would be content with the humble prey, Armand. Yet she had done her best, had strained every nerve for Armand's sake. She could not bear to think that all had failed. She could not sit still. She wanted to go and hear the worst at once. She wondered even that Chauvelin had not come yet to vent his wrath and satire upon her. Lord Greenville himself came presently to tell her that her coach was ready and that Sir Percy was already waiting for her, ribbons in hand. Marguerite said farewell to her distinguished host. Many of her friends stopped her as she crossed the rooms to talk to her and exchanged pleasant au revoirs. The minister only took final leave of beautiful Lady Blakeney on the top of the stairs. Below, on the landing, a veritable army of gallant gentlemen were waiting to bid goodbye to the Queen of Beauty and Fashion, whilst outside, under the massive portico, Sir Percy's magnificent bays were impatiently pawing the ground. At the top of the stairs, just after she had taken her final leave, she suddenly saw Chauvelin. He was coming up the stairs slowly, and rubbing his thin hands very softly together. There was a curious look on his mobile face, partly amused and wholly puzzled, and as his keen eyes met Marguerite's, they became strangely sarcastic. Monsieur Chauvelin, she said, as he stopped at the top of the stairs, bowing elaborately before her. My coach is outside. May I claim your arm? As gallant as ever, he offered her his arm and led her downstairs. The crowd was very great. Some of the minister's guests were departing. Others were leaning against the banisters watching the throng as it filed up and down the wide staircase. Chauvelin, she said at last desperately, I must know what has happened. What has happened, dear lady, he said, 
with affected surprise. Where? When? You are torturing me, Chauvelin. I have helped you tonight. Surely I have the right to know. What happened in the dining room at one o'clock just now? She spoke in a whisper, trusting that in the general hubbub of the crowd, her words would remain unheeded by all, save the man at her side. Quiet and peace reigned supreme, fair lady. At that hour I was asleep in the corner of one sofa, and Sir Percy Blakeney in another. Nobody came into the room at all. Nobody. Then we have failed, you and I. Yes, we have failed, perhaps. But Amand, she pleaded. Ah, Amand, St. Justice chances hang on a thread. Pray, heaven, dear lady, that that thread may not snap. Chauvelin, I worked for you, sincerely, earnestly, remember. I remember my promise, he said quietly. The day that the Scarlet Pimpernel and I meet on French soil, St. Just will be in the arms of his charming sister. Which means that a brave man's blood will be on my hands, she said with a shudder. His blood, or that of your brother. Surely at the present moment you must hope, as I do, that the enigmatical Scarlet Pimpernel will start for Calais today. I am only conscious of one hope, Citoyenne, and that is, that Satan, your master, will have need of you elsewhere before the sun rises today. You flatter me, Citoyenne. She had detained him for a while, midway down the stairs, trying to get at the thoughts which lay beyond that thin, fox-like mask. But Chauvelin remained urbane, sarcastic, mysterious, not a line betrayed to the poor, anxious woman, whether she need fear or whether she dared to hope. Downstairs on the landing, she was soon surrounded. Lady Blakeney never stepped from any house into her coach without an escort of fluttering human moths around the dazzling light of her beauty. But before she had finally turned away from Chauvelin, she held out a tiny hand to him, with that pretty gesture of childish appeal which was so essential to her own. Give me some hope, my little Chauvelin, she pleaded. With perfect gallantry, he bowed over that tiny hand which looked so dainty and white through the delicately transparent black lace mitten and kissed the tip of the rosy fingers. Pray heaven that the thread may not snap, 
he repeated with his enigmatic smile. And stepping aside, he allowed the moths to flutter more closely round the candle, and the brilliant throng of the Genese Dore, eagerly attentive to Lady Blakeney's every movement, hid the keen, fox-like face from her view.